morning, I, I want to begin a series with you on the book of First Peter. So I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of First Peter, if you will, and let's ask God to bless this message. Father God, we look to you as we turn to First Peter. God, we look to that apostle to give us wisdom for this day and age, to encourage us and help us that we're not going to back down, but we're going to stand firm and stand strong. Father, we thank you for a faith that stands sure on the rock of Jesus Christ. Help us to discern what you're saying to this church in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you turn to 1 Peter, we begin our study this morning. And I believe that this is a book for this day. So what we want to do is start off to understand who wrote this book. Now, this is going to be a wild Guess, who do you think wrote this book? It was Peter, yeah, it was Peter. Peter wrote it now probably because in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, he says that his son Mark is with him. He's referring to John Mark, who is not his son by birth, but a son in the faith. You'll remember John Mark was that young man that went with Paul and Barnabas. He was Barnabas' nephew. And they went on that missions trip, and, and Mark cut out early. He couldn't handle it. He left. Now, this caused such a problem between Paul and Barnabas that when they went to their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark back, and Paul said, I don't want anything to do with that guy. He's a quitter. And it, it says that their dispute was so sharp that it split the team of Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. Now, Barnabas, we know, must have continued to strengthen him and encourage him because Mark then became um, a son in the faith to Peter and went with Peter wherever he went and wrote down all of Peter's messages and so forth. And that's where we get the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is Mark's account of Peter's recollection of Jesus Christ. So the Gospel of Mark is really Peter's Gospel. And so here, quite possibly, uh, Mark is the scribe for 1 Peter, and he writes it. Now, let's take a look at this and see who this book is written to. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, that is modern-day Turkey. That region of Asia Minor is where Turkey is today. And so there's churches there. And he says to the diaspora, those who are scattered, those who are of the faith. So this is Jews and Gentiles. We're about 64, 65 AD. And they're persecuted in Jerusalem, so they had to leave. And so they go out and uh, disperse. That's what diaspora, disbursement is. So the church disperses into these cities and gathers together in those cities to come together as the body of Christ. And so Peter is writing to them. Now this is a very interesting time because it's a dangerous time. In 64, 65, it's when Herod begins to escalate his persecution against Jews. And what Nero does is he begins to use Jew, uh, Christians both Jews and Gentile Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, as entertainment. He'll bring them into the Colosseum so that the animals can devour them and eat them. He'll put them on posts 
uh, and put them tar and feather them and light them on fire so that in the evening they could have light in his gardens and at the Colosseum. So he lit them with the, with the bodies of Christians. The persecution's really strong. And uh, so this is a time where it's kind of scary to give your life to Jesus Christ. At this time, when the gospel was preached and said, will you give your life to Jesus? It literally meant, will you give your life to Jesus? Today we say something like that. We say, would you give your life to Jesus? And we say, I'll think about it. I, I don't know if I want to add him to my, to my arsenal of pleasure-seeking things. I could use a Santa Claus. I could use a, a credit card. I could use something for me. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, will you give your life? Will you understand that you'll lay down your life to the glory of God? Now, that's not an easy decision, and it's going to get harder to come to Christ in these days. But we have to understand the true meaning of this gospel. Now, what is the purpose of this letter? And what the purpose is, he tells us in chapter 5, verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In verse 12 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore, stand firm. This is a letter of encouragement to stand under the duress and persecution of that day and age. I believe that this epistle is going to become essential to the church once again to understand we need to stand firm. That God is going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish His church. In this day, He's going to establish us to stand firm. He's going to strengthen us. He's going to confirm our faith, right? and restore the people of God. How many of you know the church needs this? The church needs restoration. First, it needs restoration in the essential doctrines of the faith. Because right now, the waters are so muddy. It is not a crystal stream flowing from the fount of God's throne. Right now, it's a muddy water that's been messed up by the church. We have diluted the true doctrine of the church. And so now you can't call something Christian because we can't even identify Christianity. It has accepted so many different things into the stream. But a biblical Christianity is going to be restored. And what that will do, brothers and sisters, be aware of this. It will weed out the tares from the wheat. It will take out those who are not true, biblically sound, doctrinal Christians. They're not going to like when you draw a hard line on what the Word of God says. But God's going to restore His church. In fact, can I tell you, one of the first moves he did, he's done in, in the United States to restore the doctrine of the church, he's allowed our society to choose gay marriage as a normal aspect of life. Why would God allow that? Because if we're not going to draw the line, if the church will not draw the line, he'll let the secular society draw the line. And they drew the line way outside the barns, uh, the border. So now, what's the church got to do? Reclaim. we've got to decide, is this biblical or not? Half the church says, oh, it's okay. So where is the line got to be redrawn? In the church. He's got to restore the church in the church before he restores the church to the nations. 
Does this make sense to you? So he's going to restore his church. Secondly, he's going to confirm the faith. He's going to confirm. Now, how did God confirm his word in this New Testament that we've seen? It says that he always confirmed his words with signs and wonders. And so we need to get back to the place of expectation that God's going to have the final word and God will confirm what is true. And he'll confirm it by the power, the dunamis presence of his Holy Spirit, which will bring strength to the body of Christ and reestablish us as those ambassadors for the kingdom of God. So Peter says, stand firm. Whether Nero lights you up on a pole, stand firm. Whether you're arrested, whether your property is taken, what do you do? Stand firm. Having done all, we must what? Stand. And that's what we will do. We will stand. Now, how in the world do you stand under this? He goes on, he says this, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Christ Jesus and for sprinkling with His blood. With the power of the Trinity, the triune God on our side, you can stand. First of all, he says, because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, what does that mean, foreknowledge? God knows the beginning from the end. How many of you believe that? Do you really believe that? God knows the beginning from the end. It says his foreknowledge. How many of you know that, in fact, his foreknowledge is also his middle knowledge is also his eternal knowledge? We look at foreknowledge and we think there's a knowledge that God had before time. I want you to know, outside of time, God knows everything. He didn't just know what was going to happen. He knows what is happening and what will eventually happen. So if you step out of earth realm, go into the knowledge of God, there's foreknowledge, but it's the same as as post-knowledge. Before all this began, God knows what happens in the end. So we get, all, we get all stuck on predestination and the sovereignty of God. Can I tell you something? God's sovereign, He knew it all. And the foreknowledge, did He choose? Did He not choose? He, the foreknowledge was also the post-knowledge. He already knew at the end too. You try and figure it out, I can't. In God, He knows all things. So we argue about whether he knew that we were going to get saved or not saved. He knew. And it's not based on foreknowledge, and that's based on your decision. It's based on what the end was. So before this thing started, it already ended. And if you're messed up already, just hold on to God, that's all. Know that he's that great and he can handle this. Then he set us aside by his spirit. That's what's sanctifying the sanctification of the Spirit. Not only did God know that He wanted you, He set you aside and sealed you by the power of His Holy Spirit so that they can beat you, they can kill you, they can do whatever they want, but they can't take Him out of you. They cannot take this salvation away from you no matter what happens to you because it's sealed in you by the Spirit of God. God's foreknowledge has called you. He's sealed it in you. And by the blood of Jesus Christ, this thing's secure. Amen? All he's looking for is your obedience. Will you obey out of your free will and out of your ability to respond to this supernatural sovereignty of God? Will you obey, sealed by the blood, sealed by the Spirit and the knowledge of God? Stand firm in all of this. Amen? That's how we're going to do it. And so how we are going to do it is this greeting that Peter says. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
So when you read the Gospels, when you read the epistles, you'll read Paul, and Paul always greets them, grace and peace to you, grace and peace to you. Now by the grace of the Father, peace to you. That's the greeting of the early church, grace and peace. Peter says, not only do I give grace and peace, I want it multiplied. Because I'm speaking to a people who are under duress, who are under persecution, who are going to go through trials. Not only do you you need grace and peace, you need it multiplied. Times seven. Seven's the number of perfection. Grace and peace multiplied to you. Because I need grace for tomorrow. And I need more grace than yesterday. I need the peace of God in my heart. A peace that passes understanding. Does that make sense to you? And so it needs to be multiplied to me. Can God multiply His grace and peace in my life? It says that by His abundant provision of grace that we would be satisfied. Paul prayed, oh God, help me. I've got a thorn in my flesh. Uh, Everything I'm trying to achieve and trying to get done, there's someone who's trying to destroy it and trying to buffet me and trying to come against me. Could you take it away? And God said, you know what? I'm not going to because my grace is sufficient. What? To supply all your needs. My grace is sufficient for what you need. He's not going to get you to escape trial, escape persecution. Now, we Americans would try that. We'll pay for it. We would. If if you could put a credit card amount on something and say escape persecution, we'd be first in line. In fact, we've invented a doctrine that says we're going to get out of here so that we never even have to be hurt by anything. Talk to the rest of the Christian world. And see, listen, this grace and this peace is sufficient to get you through every trial. You just don't know how you'll be able to handle it. God knows you better than you. Hold on to Him. And so He says we need grace and peace multiplied. So what we need is sustainability. How many of you know that? That's a very popular term nowadays, sustainability, right? Right. So when you look at the economy of, of, there was a big question about the city of Detroit. Is Detroit sustainable? With the population, with the situation, with the automakers, right? With the economy, with what's going on politically, is Detroit viable and sustainable? Is the United States, in fact, sustainable? It's a great question. At this spending rate, is our finance and our economy, we owe so much money to outside debtors. Is the United States economically sustainable i would tell you absolutely not absolutely not but we don't care as long as we can keep buying what we want we're in a tough place folks and this thing's going to happen soon something's going to happen why because all things on this earth are not sustainable that are run by men or women but is our salvation sustainable absolutely and that's what peter is addressing That our salvation is sustainable. Listen, it's been 2015 years and Christianity has not been uh, washed out, rubbed out, or put away. They've tried to destroy the Bibles. In Russia, they tried to put down communism, tried to defeat Christianity. Who won? Christianity. In China, they tried to get away with Christianity. They killed all... They exported all the missionaries, killed all the ones that were left, destroyed all the churches. And what's going on right now in China? The greatest revival ever. The largest church ever. And so you cannot kill this thing. Why? It's sustainable. Why is Christianity sustainable? 
he goes in to tell you why. Let me read it to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. First of all, he says it's a living hope. This thing's not a dead hope. This isn't based on our ability. This is a hope that is secured by the blood of Jesus. It's, it's built in the reality of God. God is self-sustainable. Aren't you glad about that? God doesn't need anybody or anything else to sustain himself or his word or anything he's created. He's self-sustaining. And that's our living hope. Christ rose from the dead. Is he going to die again? Where is your hope put? In Christ. Therefore, it is a living hope. He is alive and well right now. And alive forevermore. So my hope is in Jesus Christ. That's a living hope. You can take away anything in my life. You can take away my life. But you know what? In Christ, that doesn't bother me. To live is Christ. To die is what? Gain. Man, I got this thing. Now he goes on to describe this gospel. How we're born again. He says, first of all, it's imperishable. So our faith, brothers and sisters, is imperishable. It will not perish. It will not cease because it's founded in the work of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If Jesus rose from the dead, this is Paul's logic, and we are buried with him in baptism, we will therefore what? Rise from the dead. It's imperishable. Now, what will happen if a church will have a testimony of God, the blood of the Lamb, and will not love its own life even unto death. That equation equals the defeat of, the, of Satan, the enemy. Right? The blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives even unto death. That's imperishable. And so this is where many Christians are around the world today. They stand firm on their faith. They will not get rid of it. They will not deny Christ because they know whatever you do to me and even taking my life, my hope is imperishable. It's in Christ Jesus. It will not fade away. Tertullian said that the blood of the, the martyr is the seed of the church. Every time there's been persecution against the church to get rid of the church, somehow, some way, it begins to multiply. He secondly said, it's undefiled. Because the church is blood-bought, blood-washed. It is purified by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are undefiled. It will not fall to corruption. God will not fail us, nor will Jesus Christ fail us. He will not change. He is immutable. He is pure. He is holy. And so is the church. And so God wants us clean. Thirdly, it's unfading. Now again, we're supposedly in a post-Christian era. And, and people, the intellectuals, really want Christianity to be gone. I'm sorry, it's unfading. You cannot stop the brilliance of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I like the way Paul ran into Jesus. How many of you know that on the Damascus Road? Paul had himself a religious experience as he was going to kill Christians. 
And I love how he ran into Jesus. It just knocked him flat. And what happened is it says that he saw something more brilliant than the sun. He's unfading. Paul tried to vanquish and get rid of Christianity, but he ran into the one thing that will not fade, the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ will not fade. You can mock him. You can draw cartoons about him. You can say stupid things about him. You can put him on your sitcoms and in TV. You can do all sorts of things against Christ, but his glory will not fade. And the church needs to reflect that glory. Thirdly, he said that it's kept in heaven. Hallelujah. This thing is kept in the kingdom of God in the very bosom of the Father. It cannot fade. It can't be defiled. It's not imperishable. It's not built on human government. It's not based on human ideas and human needs. This thing is transcendent above all created realms. Nothing can separate me from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. Now height, nor depth, nor angel, nor principality, nor life, nor death, nor time. Paul goes into every aspect of realms in the created universe and he says you cannot stop this gospel. Now you've got to believe that, people. You've got to trust in this gospel. This is something we have. I've got something undefiled, unfading, imperishable. Thank God. And that is what sustains me. The sustainability of the gospel is it can take anything. And when you come against it, it only shines brighter. When you try to destroy it, it only grows stronger. That's what he said. Now let's go on, verse 5, to see what else he says about it. He says this, who by God's power you're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're in the last times. What should be revealed? This faith. Faith for salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. So there's going to be a great revelation of faith. It's going to come down to it. Either you are for Him or you're against Him. All this murkiness of, yeah, yeah, this or that. No, 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 no. It's going to be either you are standing on Christ or you are not. It's going to be revealed that way. In this you rejoice, though, not, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You don't know how much faith you have till it is tested. He said this test, this faith is going to be revealed in these last days. And if this church is going to be spotless and pure and revealed as a glorious bride, she's going to have to be tested. And in that testing, you prove out what is pure, what is right, what is true. James put it this way. You know that the testing of your faith produces what? Perseverance. You're going to get through it. You're going to make it. And again, what happens in the testing of our trials, he says it's like gold. Now there's something important about gold when you try it by fire. Number one, you have to test whether you have real gold. You can test whether there's real gold a number of different ways. You can bite it. Gold is a soft metal. You ever see Olympians, Olympic, they, they take their metal, they go like that, they bite it. They want to know, is this thing gold or fake? 
So you can bite it, you can, you can scratch it, rub it, and if, it's, if it leaves a black mark, it's not gold. If it leaves a gold mark, we got gold. Right? So you, there's a lot of different ways you can test gold, but when you melt it down, you'll see whether it's gold or not. So it is the test of a trial to see if you're saved or not. So how many of you are praying for a revival of the church? All right, I think I can see your thinking. Because I saw two hands raised. Because if we want a revived, pure church, what must we expect? Yeah. Trials, perseverance. At some point, you have to ask yourself, what's more important, my comfort or God's glory? Somebody's got to start asking that question. We're not willing to give one of them up. Which one? So when the testing comes. Now here's another reason for testing the gold. Number one, to see how pure it is. Pastor, why are you talking like this? I don't like this. I want to feel good when I get out of here. There's one way you're going to feel good is to see Christ high and lifted up. There's nothing like seeing the glory of Christ Jesus. Paul says that that these trials that we have here will be forgotten in an instant in the presence of the Lord. We've got all eternity to enjoy the presence of God. Right now, you need to be pure. Pure gold. Pure gold. And so what happens through these trials? Peter's encouraging the church, saying, don't give up. There's a test to see the quality, the genuineness, he says. The genuineness of your faith. Do you love me? How genuine are you? Have you ever seen people jump ship? Isn't it interesting? Peter's writing this. I wonder if Mark's scribing it, writing it down. Genuine faith. Huh? Mark hung, he, he, he hung in there. At one point, he didn't though, did he? There may be times when people jump ship. Go get them. Go after them. You know what happens usually when you jump ship? You're just jumping into another trial. He's not going to let go of you. And so you're just going to jump into another trial. Here's the second reason that you try gold by fire. Because in that fire, it separates the impurities. God needs a spotless church. So what's He going to do? He's going to allow us to become so pure from the world that He's got to extract the world out of us. That's called renewing your mind. Renewing your mind. Many of us don't know how much of the world's in us. Many of us don't understand how much impurity is in us that shouldn't be. And so we're going to have to go through different things so that it shows up so that the Spirit can remove it from our lives. Does that make sense to you? He says this is a genuine faith. I want to see a genuine faith. Verse 8, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I love that phrase. It's so simple. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. He's talking to us. Peter saw Him. Do you remember the question Jesus asked him after Jesus rose from the dead and they were sitting around a campfire, had a little fish cooking? What was the question? Do you love me? Right? 
after all that he had seen. Peter, in his boldness, wanted to stay close to the Lord. He said, I'm never going to leave you. I'll never forsake you. I may deny you. He didn't know that was in him. But he was so strong saying, everybody else will leave you. And he tried to prove it. Remember in the garden? When they came for him, Peter grabbed the sword and said, oh no, and shoo. Did he go after a soldier? No, he went after a servant guy. Now either he's a really bad aim. Now what was he trying to do? Was he trying to cut the guy's head off? He ended up cutting his ear off. I don't understand what that is. What was he aiming at? He's a fisherman. He's not a sword fighter. Jesus said, Peter, put that sword away. So, I mean, he so much proved, hey, I'm with you. I will not deny you. I'll not leave you. I honestly believe that it was Peter's pride that caused him to deny Jesus despite his best efforts because everybody did flee except Peter followed him to, it says that he saw Jesus and Jesus saw him, fled to that court, went there and stayed around the, the barrel till he could see what they were going to do with Jesus standing by the fire. They say, hey, aren't you one of them? Aren't you one of those disciples? Now he's thinking, I need to stay close to Jesus because I'm not going to leave him, so I need to deny. No, I don't know him. I'm not him. I, I don't know who he is, but I, see, I'm staying here. How many things in the name of Christianity do we do, but it's actually denying the Christianity we stand for? Finally, a little girl, on the third time, the little girl says, hey, aren't you? And it says he curses and swears, I don't know him. And the crow calls out, and it says, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Luke tells us that, and Peter realizes what he had just done. In his best effort, his own effort to stay faithful, he denied. Religion will get the best of you every time. And so in our efforts to stay faithful to Jesus, many times we deny Jesus. We come up with justifications. We come up with ideas we can get away with. So I think this is amazing that Peter says, though you've never seen Him, you, be- you love Him. That's true of us. I've never seen Jesus. Maybe some of you have. It would be wonderful to see Jesus, wouldn't it? The privilege of many Muslims nowadays are having visions of Christ Jesus. Imams and and believers all over the world, and especially in the Middle East. Muslims are waking up in the middle of the night and Jesus is standing in the room and saying, read of me, I am in the book. They're getting to see Jesus. We've never seen Jesus. I was in Texas last year in January uh, at Iran Alive uh, speaking on that TV show that is satellite-driven over into Iran. Right now, there is a huge revival, underground church going on in Iran. You won't hear about it. You don't know it. We don't realize how earth-shaking the kingdom is right now. It's moving. And right now in Iran, as everybody's talking about nuclear issues about Iran, can I tell you, there's a nuclear thing going on right now 
that's going to explode in Iran, and it's not a bomb, it's the church. While I was speaking there, they had, uh, it was live streaming in Iran, and I was speaking on Nicodemus coming at night to Jesus in the secret. And, and they were getting text messages and emails, and he said, would you like to answer some of them? I said, sure. And one lady texted and said, is there something wrong with me? Does Jesus love me less than others? Because I've not had a vision of him yet. It blew me away. Because having visions of Jesus is so, um, it's happening, it's so frequent in Iran and in the Muslim world, they're seeing Jesus. He needs to, he shows up. It's so frequent that it didn't happen to this lady, so she thinks she must not be a good Christian because she didn't get to see Jesus. I assured her that you can be saved without seeing Jesus. We don't see Jesus, but we love him. Do you love him? Because, see, he's invisible. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Jesus is real. Here's the evidence right here in this room. You're the evidence of an unseen Jesus. He says, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe him. And that's the power of God's Holy Spirit. That's the test. You'll believe Him though you don't see Him. Now, what was hidden from view was this Gospel. And he goes on to tell us. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, he says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look into. This thing was hidden from the beginning of time in the foreknowledge of God. That's this gospel, imperishable, now delivered unto you. And Peter makes this point. The prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, King David, they prophesied of the Messiah coming, but they didn't understand when and how. David prophesied that the government would be upon his shoulders. He'd be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, and then later he prophesies and says he's going to be a suffering servant who's stricken and smitten by God. He didn't understand it. Ezekiel talks about the coming of Christ. Jeremiah talks about it. Daniel talks about the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory. They don't understand all of this, but they weren't speaking for their knowledge. Peter says they were speaking for you. We've got what was hidden in God for ages. It's now manifest. And it's been in our midst for 2,000 years. What will you do with this faith that is imperishable, undeniable, unfading, kept in heaven, now sealed in you? It's sustainable. This hidden knowledge now must be released, must be given. It says that even angels looked into it. Did you understand? You knew more than angels did. 
Come on, for us to come to the gospel in this dispensation is an amazing thing. We have more knowledge than all the prophets of the Old Testament and more knowledge than the angels did till Christ died, rose from the dead. They were trying to figure it out as much as the church was. Peter's trying to figure out this gospel. He goes to Cornelius' house and Gentiles get saved. They go, oh my gosh, Gentiles got saved. This is crazy good. You know what the angels were saying? Whoa, Gentiles got saved. This is crazy good. They're catching up to what was going on. They're looking into this activity. They don't understand it. Philip has to go to an Ethiopian eunuch and present the gospel to him. The angels transport Philip to an Ethiopian eunuch in the desert. Man, he was having revival in Samaria. He's having a party. This is awesome. Samaritans are getting saved, filled with the Spirit. This is crazy. And you know what the angels were saying? Samaritans are getting saved and filled with the Spirit. This is crazy. So they said, oh, God told us, got an assignment. Take Philip over into uh, the desert. Take him there, drop him off. He preaches to an Ethiopian eunuch. He gets saved. Guess what the angels are catching up with? The same thing the church is. This thing's been hidden. But you know it. It was presented to you. It was presented to you. Do you understand the privilege that we have of a hidden view of this gospel? It is imperishable. This thing was hidden in God from the beginning of time. Now it's hidden in you. It was hidden from view. But now it was brought to you. Should it remain hidden, then we are responsible to preach it. He goes on to say this. Verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish or spot. So if we hold this hidden gospel for ages... It must be spoken, but how? It must be revealed in us, and therefore, we must be transparent. We must walk in cooperation with the gospel. We must be holy as God is holy. We must walk undefiled. We represent an imperishable gospel, one that will not cease. Its glory will not fade. If you've got doubts about the Word of God, get to work. Start studying. Stop listening to all the foolishness out there. You know better than to listen to half these nuts that say they're theologians. Study the Word of God. Study this Word. The only way you can tell between a counterfeit and the real is to know what the real is. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it's time you're going to have to study the Word of God. No more spoon-feeding from the pulpit. No more spoon-feeding from your favorite Bible teachers. 
Most of them have an angle that they preach because that's what you do. They got a hit single, so they repeat it over and over and over again. It's the same jingle. It could be your best day ever. Their next book is, tomorrow's your best day ever. After that, it's the best week ever. This could be your best life ever. Let's get into the Word of God. Because half these things don't translate to the rest of the church that is being persecuted. It's an American gospel. It's time to get back into an imperishable gospel that is in the foreknowledge of God through the prophets unto us who are going to hold this word true. Be holy as I am holy. And the only way for you and I to be holy is the spirit of holiness dwelling in us. Once you were saved, that spirit of holiness has come to abide in you. And so now we are holy. He goes on and he says this, verse 20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or demonstrated in the last times for the sake of you. What's he calling this dispensation? The last times. Since Christ manifested, we are in the last times. All right? And so he says he was manifest for you. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. My hope is in God. My hope is in Christ. Not in the church, not in the pastor, not in other Christians. How many of you know other Christians will let you down? Everyone will let you down. There's one who will not let you down, although you will think he lets you down because it's all about you. You've got to get yourself reoriented again and realize that Christ is the measure, not us. He is our source. He is our all in all. How would your Christianity change if today cable was gone, TV was gone, radio was gone? What would you do in your building up your faith if you had no audio equipment? What would you do if they burned every Bible and you couldn't get your hands on it? Could you have a living faith with a living God? Absolutely. Because that Bible is in you by the Spirit of God. That Jesus is in you by the Spirit of God. So, they may get rid of all that, but this gospel is imperishable. It is sustainable by the living Spirit of God in us. And we've got to recognize that. Let's finish it. It is also now kept in heaven. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the Word, the good news that was preached to you. That's what we have. An imperishable Word. It's unfading, undenying, undefiled, pure, glorious. That's our Gospel. It's held in God. Sealed in us by His Spirit. And so it is sustainable. We can get through whatever we're going to have to get through. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Amen. And so you will begin to see it demonstrated. You'll begin to see this gospel performed on beaches 
You'll see it performed in households. You'll see the test of Christian faith throughout the world broadcast and demonstrated. You'll begin to see that people will give their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. Their last words will be, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. The cowards who cover their faces will do things to those who with unveiled faces reflect the glory of God. That is the church. This is the gospel preached to you. It is imperishable. It will sustain you. So Peter says, stand firm and see the salvation of your God. Amen. Let's bow.